Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today is Kristen Harmon. She's a senior lecturer in history at the University of Tasmania. She's here to talk about her new book, Cleansing the Colony, Transporting Convicts from New Zealand to Van Diemen's Land, published by Otago University Press in 2017. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Jason. So, Kristen, the book is about uh, convicts um, from New Zealand. You know, people may know that, you know, Van Diemen's Land, what we today call Tasmania, was a penal colony for British convicts. People may know that. But they may not know that uh, at least 110 New Zealand prisoners were also transported to the island uh, in the 19th century to serve as convict laborers. How did you get interested in, in this particular topic? I already had an interest in convicts. I've lived in Tasmania for a couple of decades now, so you can't really live here without being aware of that past. The built environment still really smacks of it. There's lots of wonderful convict-built buildings here and, of course, misery too associated with that period. But I happened to be in the archives in Wellington in New Zealand, which is, in fact, my, my home country in Wellington at one point, my old hometown. And I was looking at it a completely different topic. I was interested in Japanese prisoners of war who were housed in New Zealand and the Second World War. But while I was waiting for archival records, I thought, look, while I'm here, I'll just tap into the catalogue, Van Diemen's Land, and see what comes up. And that's when this most amazing, beautiful, leather-bound convict indent from the 1840s was delivered to me in the archives reading room. And I almost fell off my chair chair with surprise at um, this amazing document. It's one of those spectacular archival discoveries. D- did you, being from New Zealand, you know, living in Australia, have any influence on kind of the research topic that you were interested in? Uh, yes, it was absolutely over to me if I wanted to pursue that topic. It's not particularly proscriptive about what we might research, so long as we are following you know, a research agenda. And as a New Zealander now living in Tasmania, I was really I thought quite ideally suited to take on this project because I had knowledge about New Zealand as well as Van Diemen's Land, so I could bring the two together in this book that told that story from both sides of the Tasman Sea, if you will. So take us back to the, sort of the beginning of your story. Uh, you know, the, really the, the beginning focuses on the 1840s. What was New Zealand like when the story begins in, in the 1840s? I think New Zealand was quite a fascinating place because really – For about almost half a century, there had been contact with a range of people, you know, ranging from American whalers to people escaping from the Australian penal colonies and so on. And this went on for almost half a century to the point where the far north of New Zealand was called the hellhole of the Pacific. It was thought of as a very lawless place. But this all changed gradually. So by 1840, the British actually signed with Mini Māori, the Treaty of Waitangi, and New Zealand became a British colony. But perhaps what many New Zealanders prefer to forget or overlook is that 
New Zealand was originally actually governed from New South Wales and Australia. So for the, that first short time, it used New South Wales laws that was ruled from there until it gradually developed its own body of laws and law courts to deal with people that were seen to be criminals, whether they were Māori or European, people from elsewhere and so on. So there seems to be uh, a lot kind of changing at that time. What what was Van Diemen's Land like uh, at, the sim- at the same time? Van Diemen's Land by then had been a colony for several decades and uh, it was really on the cusp of wanting to push uh, back against having any more convicts sent to it, particularly from Britain. It felt that it was time to shift and become a more independent, perhaps affluent colony and to get rid of what later came to be called colloquially the convict stain. But it was quite well developed. So there were relatively large towns. There had been a vicious war of extermination fought against the island's indigenous people, so had more or less vanished. There were just a few dozen left, having been numbering in the thousands on the eve of colonisation, which had taken place in 1804. So it was quite a developed society and Hobart, its capital, was quite an important port, perhaps second at that point only to Sydney and New South Wales. One of the things that your book does really nicely is take us through the steps of what happens when the convicts arrive. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know, what happens when they got off the boats. Sure. So some convicts were actually questioned, particularly on the very large vessels, they were questioned on those ships or convict transports, and they were inspected. So if there were medical issues on board, they might, for example, be quarantined and not even allowed to disembark. On the smaller intercolonial vessels, which were often little trading ships where the captain was paid extra to bring convicts and police guards um, accompanying them to Van Diemen's land, they could be disembarked in Hobart and then marched down the road to the government paddock where they were interviewed. So... There's wonderful records that have survived in the archives of the outcome of those interviews where people, particularly white people in New Zealand, and there were people of colour too, in the 1840s were really called on to explain in great detail where they'd come from to justify their existence because some of them, of course, were in fact convicts who had escaped from New South Wales or Van Diemen's Land and fled to New Zealand. And interestingly and surprisingly perhaps, Some of those very same men were recognised by prison guards in Hobart and were known to be the same men, even though they had changed their names. So the men were processed. They were then, at that point in the 1840s, sent off to what were known as probation stations, where they had to serve a period of probation in a probationary work gang. They might be clearing bush or doing some other types of labouring work, perhaps brick-making. After they had served their probation, they could then be allocated into service, and that could be with the government, or they might be allocated to private individuals to be their convict servants. And ultimately, if they survived their sentence, and of course some didn't, they died while under sentence, those who had survived then went through a system whereby they could apply for a ticket of leave. Uh, and then eventually they might be able to get a conditional pardon, and ultimately some of them could get an absolute pardon, 
which would enable them to return to their countries of origin. What's interesting about your book is that um, a number of the individuals are, are not household names. Uh, why was it important to sort of tell the story of you know unknown, largely unknown people? Uh, and maybe you can tell us a bit about William Phelps Pickering, who's a really central and fascinating figure. Sure. I thought it was really important because what this group of people does, the 110 uh, of these unknown names, really, as you say, is they give us a slice of New Zealand history at that time and also insights into Van Diemen's land as a penal colony. So these are, by and large, working-class people. These are impoverished people. They are ordinary, everyday people. And I like to practice what I've called social biography, where you take a person's story, like William Phelps Pickering, for example, and you look at him and his wider social, economic and legal context, and his story tells us something about that bigger picture. He fascinated me. He was a young fellow who came out as a young adventure-seeking man from England, and he was a free man. He came to Van Diemen's Land hoping, no doubt, to make his fortune. He tried a few different jobs. He tried his luck in Melbourne, ultimately ending up back in Van Diemen's Land in the northern town of Launceston in a debtor's prison at one stage. And he seemed to give up on the Australian colonies and went to New Zealand, which was at the point at which he arrived, a very new British colony. Tried his luck there, but was caught out for an act of dishonesty and ended up being sent back to Van Diemen's Land as a convict. So having lived here, he would have known very well what he was in for. However, he was one of the very few so-called you know, white-collar criminals. He served his sentence. He later went back to New Zealand, uh, one of a handful of people known to have done so, and he actually did extremely well for himself, building up businesses, including quite well-known landmarks. He married, he had children, he ultimately ended up as an old man just several years from death, uh, having to come back to Australia, to Melbourne. He needed to comfort um, his nephew's widow because the nephew, or actually the great-nephew, uh, had been killed in battle in New Zealand, fighting against Māori in the New Zealand wars. He comforted the young widow so well, they ended up having to marry and they had children together just shortly before he died in older age. So he actually had quite a successful life after having served his sentence in Van Diemen's Land. Most of the um, convicts taken from New Zealand were young single men from a working class background, but there was some diversity among the group, right? Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit, were there uh, Maori men taken? Yes, so there were. There were a number of Maori actually sentenced to transportation, but as it turned out, we only know of six who were actually transported to Van Diemen's Land, five in one group and one fellow later on who I, who was simply put in hospital for a couple of weeks and shipped back because nobody knew what to do with them. But the five Maori are really what I think could be called political prisoners they had been involved in a large campaign in the Hutt Valley near Wellington in New Zealand as part of the New Zealand wars being fought in the 1840s. These men were what you might call fighting men or warriors. They were later captured because of the policies at the time enacted by the New Zealand Governor George Grey. The whole district of Wellington was under martial law, so 
These men were actually tried by court-martial. They were found of being, that they had been in open rebellion against Queen and Country, as well as some lesser charges. And as a result of that, they were sent to Van Diemen's Land. Now, I backfired a bit on Grey. Grey was very keen to have these men, who were all literate, write letters back to their compatriots in New Zealand to dissuade them from taking up arms against the government and you know, to, to tell about the horrors of being convicts in Van Diemen's Land. But when they arrived in Hobart and they were in their traditional Māori dress, they were actually greeted something akin to, to heroes and the locals living in Hobart at the time, despite what they'd done with, to their own Indigenous peoples, were outraged and they thought the way New Zealand colonists were treating Māori was appalling. And here were these, you know, so-called noble warriors they even had uh, portraits painted of them and so on and so forth. And the pressure was such, rather than being sent to the more notorious penal stations that Grey had hoped, like Port Arthur or Norfolk Island, they were sent instead to a much more gentle probation station on a little island off Tasmania's east coast called Mariah Island. They were even kept separate from other convicts. They were given a convict overseer who was recruited for the task. John Jennings Imri, who actually spoke Māori, he'd been in New Zealand for a while, and ultimately they were just kept in that environment long enough for a letter to go to England and instructions to come back from London saying that these men ought to be set free and sent back to New Zealand. Unfortunately, one of them, Hohepetiomara, had died of tuberculosis in the meantime and wasn't actually able to be taken home again until 1988 when his family came to accompany him back to New Zealand to reinter him there. Kristen, last question before I let you go, and that is, what does this story, this largely unknown story, um, tell us about the Tasmanian and the New Zealand brand of of convictism? What 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 does it tell us about kind of the differences and, and the unique uh, context in which it took place? Sure, I think the colonies were very similar in some ways, but vastly different in others. New Zealand was at absolutely committed to not being a convict colony. The country fought hard, uh, even to the extent of having Māori sign petitions written in te reo Māori, Māori language, against having convicts sent there. The only ones that ever slipped through the net were some juvenile delinquents uh, from the Isle of Wight, from Parkhurst Prison. But the country wanted to get rid of its prisoners, so it was busy shipping them to Van Diemen's land, those that were considered to be particularly uh, you know, bad and unwanted, mostly, as you say, poorer working-class men, people that might be thought of as vagrants and ne'er-do-wells. So they were trying to build an ideal society. It was supposed to have a certain allocation of, uh, you know, prosperous gentlemen who could then employ good, honest labourers and so forth. The Māori could slot in there somewhere. Whereas Van Diemen's land had been founded largely as a penal colony, so... Van Diemen's Land was built on the labour of those convicts and they had a fight on their hands then to actually stop that flow of convicts and to create a new society. And I think an impetus coming out of that up to a point for, for quite some decades to come was to try and suppress memory about that convict past up to the point of, you know, destroying some of the buildings. And certainly while we've got a very rich archive of convict records, including you know, World Heritage listing on those are inscribed in the memory of the World Register. 
certainly some of those records were burned and destroyed as people tried to wipe out that past. So quite quite different, one colony sending and the other receiving content. Kristen, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Kristen Harmon. She's a senior lecturer in history at the University of Tasmania. Her new book is Cleansing the Colony, Transporting Convicts from New Zealand to Van Diemen's Land. It's published by Otago University Press in 2017. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.